Thanks for joining us on the Cultured Meat and Future Food Show. We're excited to speak with Josh Balk on the episode. This will be his second time on the Future Food Show. Josh Balk is the Vice President of Farm Animal Protection for the Humane Society of the United States Farm Animal Division. He's a co-founder of Eat Just Inc., the food technology company behind Just Egg. Josh and I chat about initiatives that help save animals, a potentially new restaurant idea, and more. We get a bit philosophical throughout the discussion, but overall, it was great to catch up. I'm excited to share this conversation with you. Let's jump right in. Welcome to the show, Josh. It's great to be back, Alex. I'm really thrilled that I didn't do so poorly last time that you welcomed me back. So I want to make you proud and do a good job. <laughs> well, as I was saying, I always learn something when I'm speaking with you. So it's really great to have you back. And I can't believe it's been about a year. So we published the last episode in November of 2020. I don't know. How, how does the timeline feel to you? Does it feel like a long time ago? Does it feel like a year ago or less? It feels like a long time ago, considering you know, what has been done since. When you're able to be part of campaigns that cross the finish line and succeed, especially campaigns that have taken many years to accomplish, you start losing track of time. You just think back, oh my gosh, this took a while to get here. We've reached the promised land. You know what? I just feel really excited about where we're at. And I think there's more hope than ever. That's great. And I think since that last episode, I've learned more about the exciting work that is happening from the Humane Society of the United States, some of the other kind of policies and things like that, that you've talked to me about over the last couple months. And uh, we'll get into a little bit more of that in just a second. And I'm excited to share that with the audience. The last time we spoke, you said that your father had become vegan. I was just wondering, is your father still vegan? He is. In fact, he is rallying his friends to go with him to every vegan restaurant he knows outside of Philadelphia. And we're talking about friends of his for probably 40, 50, 60 years who are in quite a bit of shock that they are being wooed and advocated to go to a vegan restaurant with my dad. Uh, and he's winning people over. Uh, he's becoming friends with the managers and waiters and waitresses at these vegan restaurants. He's bragging about his blood scores, how they are better than ever. He's telling people how much weight he's lost. Even Alex, I was visiting him a few weeks ago and we went to a football game together and people commented on their own how he is walking better than they've seen him walk before. And he credited the vegan diet. So, yep, going strong, going strong. That's great to hear. And it's funny because lately I've been hearing more stories of parents, actually specifically dads getting more into it. We had Brian Cateman on the show who was part of the documentary Meet Me Halfway. And his dad converted to a mostly vegan or vegan diet and had quite a transformation in that documentary. And my dad is now pitching me ideas. He always has these ideas. He's pitching me ideas for different now vegan restaurants. So there might be a Veganalicious coming to you pretty soon, Josh. <laughs> I can't wait to go to a Veganalicious. And, uh, you know, it would be pretty sweet for you and, and your dad to start a business together. Would you ever want to work with him? Can you imagine starting a company together, like a, a vegan restaurant chain? 
I think if it wasn't about making the business successful, but more about having fun, I could totally do it. But I think that he and I just butt heads like no other that even going on a long car ride with him would drive me crazy. So I don't think we would be able to start like a full on business. But if there was a restaurant that he was running, I would definitely love to hang out there. That's a good litmus test. Can you go on a car ride with your potential founder? If the answer is no, then it wasn't meant to be. But hey, if the restaurant opens up, let's go there. Let's have a good time. We're going to order a lot of desserts, make your dad happy, and we'll make sure to have a blast there. You know, another thing that was, for me, put that last episode into perspective from a timeline and made it seem like it was quite far away You had asked me if I had tried the frozen Just Egg product, and I hadn't yet. And it's crazy that now I feel like Just Egg is such a regular part of going to the grocery store. It's, I don't know, that's exciting. I'm happy you're enjoying it. I I could tell there's an extra spry in your voice, and it trickles back to you eating more of the frozen Just Egg patty. I can just tell. That's what just happens. And you know what? People, like their muscles get stronger, the voices become more confident. and Oh my gosh, it's like a a magic pill only in plant-based egg form. Yeah. (laughs) And what a great plant-based egg form that is. So I want to circle back to what we briefly mentioned earlier, and that's really related to policy work and some of the work that the Humane Society of the United States is doing. First off, can you tell us about some of these milestones that you mentioned earlier, milestones that have been achieved? When I first started working at the Humane Society of the United States, virtually all chickens in the egg industry were confined in cages. Just imagine a chicken confined in a cage about the size of your home microwave, cram in there another eight chickens, and that's the life for an egg-laying chicken in the U.S. egg industry. And virtually all of these chickens were confined in cages when I first started about 15 years ago. Because of successful campaigns from the Humane Society of the United States and other animal groups, we have moved major food corporations and passed transformational laws to shift the egg industry away from this cage confinement. And so we've gone from about 1-2% of the egg-laying chickens in the U.S. being cage-free to now, according to the USDA, more than 31% of the chickens are cage-free, meaning That's roughly 100 million chickens per year, mind you, who will not suffer the pain of being confined in a cage for their entire life. A chicken in a cage has to eat, lay eggs, and defecate in the same small spot every single day for entire life. Now, because of these campaigns, 100 million of them don't have to feel that fate. Cage-free, as you know, Alex, doesn't mean utopia. It doesn't mean Old McDonald's Farm. But what it does mean is that at least the chickens are able to run around in a barn, perch, dust base, scratch, lay eggs in a nesting area. And so the improvement for these animals is vast, so much so that Vox, the tremendous media outlet that does great analysis on social issues, put out there that perhaps the cage-free campaign we've been waging has caused the most reduction of suffering in U.S. history for animals. And I tend to agree. So we are moving animals out of cages, making their lives better, and we're having tangible wins to make this happen. That's super exciting. And just thinking about the numbers, especially always chickens, when you hear the numbers of chickens, whether it's, in this case, 100 million chickens now not in cages, 
just the numbers are just always so large and, and so insane. And so it's it's actually hard to put it in perspective. You're saying 100 million chickens, but for me, it's hard to even fathom. Yeah, no, you're right. It is very challenging to picture what 100 million lives look like. We can't. We just don't have that ability. What, what I can say is that we have a great ability to picture an animal. And just to think one animal being immobilized for her entire life, this poor chicken who did nothing wrong. She did not commit a crime. She didn't try to hurt anyone. Yet we force this lot in life on her just to consume an egg. It's shameful what we've done to her and hundreds of millions of animals like her every year. And the idea that now she's able to engage in basic behaviors, that's bare minimum what animals should be able to have. And it's a tremendous achievement. And since I was last on your show, we passed laws in Utah and Nevada to ban the confinement of chickens in the egg industry in small cages. And in Nevada's case, ensure that all eggs sold in the state have to be cage-free. We've also been battling to ensure that Prop 12, which is this citizen-led ballot campaign in California that passed in 2018 with two-thirds of a vote, we're making sure it still exists. What it mandates is that egg-laying chickens and mother pigs and baby veal calves can't be confined in tiny cages so they can barely move and ensures that the eggs, pork, and veal sold in the state come from producers that comply with this law. That was a transformational victory. It's led to other victories like Oregon, Washington, Michigan, Colorado, and the states that we got done this year. But there's been a, a lot of pushback. The pork industry's work through legal channels to file three different lawsuits to overturn Prop 12. Fortunately, we've won. So that's yet another thing that's happened since I was last on a show about a year ago, is that we have wage battle against the industrial pork industry and have won every single time to keep Proposition 12, this farm animal law, in place. And even the Supreme Court rejected one of their cases. So it's gone that far and so far, and I believe it will continue, that these laws will be maintained and these animals will have a much better life. From a standpoint of the farmer, whether it's really any type of animal farmer, for them to give these animals a little bit more room here and there or to be cage-free, is it a major kind of change for either from a cost standpoint or labor standpoint? Why are more people not really doing this? Yeah, that's such a good question. Why don't they just do it? Some industries just dig in their heels. It, it's strange that in animal agriculture, some industries do that. I mean, imagine being a computer company saying, you know what, we're never going to do better in our computer. What you have now in the year 2001, we're never going to improve. The computer company got a business. Imagine a cell phone company doing that or a car company doing that. Of course, it just does not make sense in modern capitalism. Yet in animal agriculture, especially the pork industry, there's just such a strong opposition to change. And they do everything they can to maintain systems that were put in place a bit after World War II, as if we can't get any better, as if society's morals don't evolve, as if they don't have to heed the wishes of their own customers, who agree, by the way, that these animals should move. And so the egg industry fully acknowledges that it will have to spend billions of dollars, that's billions with a B, billions of dollars to rip out their cages and convert to cage free. However, to give them credit, they are doing it and they are 
living in a world where they truly understand that if their customers are wanting this to occur, if the legal pathway is that these cages will be banned, knowing that the future is cage-free, they acknowledge and they accept, hey, these are the changes we're going to have to make as an industry. Uh, the veal industry, to some extent, has done the same and moved away from perpetually confining calves. The pork industry, there are some producers that certainly have gotten rid of these small cages, but others just want to try to keep a status quo. And keep in mind, Alex, when we're talking about a status quo, they are fighting to ever allow a mother pig to turn around. That's what we're talking about here. That is what they are defending. They are defending in their cold, dead hands, as they would say, their right to do as they please to a mother pig. And it perhaps shouldn't come as a surprise because industry publications encourage pork producers to treat their animals as if they're a machine, as they say. And when you look at an animal as an inanimate object, an entity that can't feel pain or suffer, it doesn't matter if you abuse them or torture them in a small cage, because in your mind, they have no more ethical obligation than if you were doing that to a chair. However, fortunately, there are voters and caring consumers out there that are ensuring laws will get passed that ban this practice for good, and that these producers, whether they like it or not, are going to have to change. And a lot of, for example, pigs, their entire lives are maybe about six months before they get slaughtered. Is, is that right? You're right that most pig comes from what the industry calls the, the feeders. And yes, it's about six months before they're killed. However, mother pigs, the industry calls them breeding pigs, are alive for four years, just in a constant cycle of impregnation and giving birth and then impregnation and giving birth. And so that means that for four years, these mother pigs can never turn around. You know, scientists have found that pigs are smarter than dogs. You know, these are inquisitive, intelligent animals who are subjected to a type of pain and suffering we can't even imagine. Picture yourself being in a cage where you can't turn around and you're that way for four years. It, it is absolutely an atrocity what we do to these poor animals. And I'm proud that we've waged campaigns to ban this practice. Just like dogfighting, just like cockfighting, treating a pig this way should be a criminal activity. And that's what we're increasingly doing. I think if you also think about it, four years for a pig is 20 to 25% of their entire lifespan. And so I guess if you were to put it in, I guess they have dog years or pig years. I don't know what the official number for that is, but it would be pretty much that in human years, you are put into a cage until you're around 20 years old or something like that. We created what's called a human gestation crate where we would ask people if they wanted to get into a life-size crate that was in essence made for people so they can go in and experience what it's like to be in a cage where you can't turn around. And even people who went in there willingly just to experience it felt within seconds they had to get out. It was just, it was too much. It was too much to handle. That was within seconds. Can you imagine doing that for years on end? And for chickens in the egg industry, I think an app comparison would be imagine walking into an elevator that is completely packed. You turn around, the door closes right in front of your nose and it never opens. Not an hour later or a week later, a month later, or a year later, it literally never opens. That is what it's like for a chicken to be in a cage in the egg industry. You know, it, it's sad stuff. It's really a horrible thing to know what we've done to these animals. However, we're making a lot of progress. We really are. And 
And I swear, if you get me on this podcast in like five years, we're going to be able to look back and say, we got most of these animals out of these cages. I'm looking forward to that day. On that note, I want to ask you about phases or, or next steps, because it seems it's not reasonable to go after policies to say that we need to completely shut down animal agriculture. That's maybe shooting too far. But is there a I don't want to use the word compromise, because if you look at the big picture, that's not really the right word. But is there a goal that's between where we are now and maybe the other end of that is completely getting rid of animal agriculture? Is there somewhere in between that kind of line where it would be a compromise, for lack of a better word, or is the goal to go all the way to the end? That's always the question when trying to pass a law is how far can you go while still having support? For us, it would be wonderful if every chicken in the world lived in a small flock and ran around the pasture and scratched on the ground and had the sun on her back, went into a little barn at night. That is an ideal life for a chicken. At the same time, we have to be practical. First of all, you know, are companies like Walmart, McDonald's going to be able to buy, supply all of their needs from operations like that? Of course not. Could we ever pass a law that would mandate every chicken live like that? No, I, I don't think so. So what we've had to do is think, okay, what is the best conditions we feel chickens can be raised in while still having vast public support? And I got to say, I think we found a really good place to land. When you look at these laws that we've passed in all of these states to ban the cage confinement of egg-laying hens, what we've done is ensure minimum standards where they're not in cages and they are able to engage in basic behavioral needs, the perching, scratching, dust bathing, laying eggs at a nest. Uh, the Netherlands Journal of Animal Sciences actually ranked all the different types of egg production as an example. They ranked cages at a zero. 10 out of 10 is the small pasture flock. And they ranked... What we have created legally is the minimum standard, a five or a six, which if you are looking to pass a law, I'm happy to go from a zero to a five or six. That's a tremendous advancement. In the future, there's always going to be continuation to make sure that the lives of animals are better. We just have to keep weighing how far we can go while still having the public support. What I would say is that the bad thing about industrial animal agriculture is the good thing about it, is that it's so bad we can get a lot of support to change it. And so when we pass these laws, you know, we're passing it with Republican, independent, and Democratic votes. This past year, Utah and Nevada are very different states in terms of their political demographic, yet we banned the confinement of chickens in both these states. When we pass our citizen initiatives, we pass them in red states, blue states, and purple states, like Florida, Arizona, California, and Massachusetts. And so we're going to keep testing the next stage as to how far you can go. But I think right now we found a good happy medium that we're going to consistently do for the next numerous years. Before industrialized animal agriculture, I would say, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but most of the meat came from smaller farms or maybe local farms, or maybe there would be a couple animals in individual households. Once that industrial animal agriculture came into play, it made things a lot worse for animals and for suffering. Not to direct this conversation in a negative way, but maybe more of a critical way. 
is there a chance that something could happen where it's definitely not the example of animal agriculture, but something comes into play that is equally as bad for animals and, and for suffering? Or do you feel that we are now a little bit more sophisticated not to go in that direction? And this is a little bit of an abstract question, but any thoughts on that? It's never good to underestimate the harm that we could do to animals. I think that if you and I were hanging out in the 1930s, 40s, 50s and said, you know what? I bet there's going to be this terrible thing that's going to happen where millions of animals are going to be stuck inside warehouses in small cages, unable to move. We would think that that was a crazy thought to have, yet it occurred. When I read about things that are happening in different places in the world, like these multi-level complexes where pigs are put in cages on top of each other, like in Asia, it starts to have you realize, oh my gosh, there's a lot of bad stuff that's popping up. These aquaculture operations where fish are just packed together in these man-made ponds where these fish have such a sad life filled with pain and suffering, it, it hurts your heart. So yeah, there could, certainly could be bad things that are going to happen in the future, and it's certainly possible. At the same time, we are achieving so much advancement, at least for land farm animals, that for what I would say for chickens in the meat industry, egg laying chickens, pigs in the pork industry, we're moving in a better direction that I don't think there's going to be a turn where things are going to get much worse. It's bad. And trust me, especially in many countries where industrialization is starting to pop up, I'm not trying to put any positive light to it. But what I can tell you is that places like United States and in the EU, things are getting better for these farm animals. And I don't see us reversing that. I see us just keep moving forward. That's refreshing to think about. And so are all of the great alternative proteins that are coming to market and advances we're making with cell cultured meat. And to now shift topics, in current times, one thing that was shocking to me is I went to buy a pillow, a throw pillow, and it was clearly labeled duck feathers. And it was real duck feathers. And to me, it just seemed so strange how this is not just normalized, but it also is like a premium product. And I remember once going into the store and asking, is this leather? right? For one of the products, hoping it's not. And then the salesperson was glorifying the fact that, oh, of course, yes, it's real leather. It's genuine leather. We talk about food quite a bit, especially on this show, but are we making advancements and also moving away from using animal products for materials? We are. In fact, the fur industry is probably the emblematic industry of using animals for clothing. It's been an industry that has been the forefront of animal advocate campaigns for decades on end. And for decades on end, there wasn't much change until the last couple of years. And now major fur retailers have come out saying, we're going to stop selling fur. Many of the most famous fashion designers that once promoted fur are now on the forefront of saying, we don't need to do this anymore and we're going to stop. In fact, we passed a law in California to ban the sale of fur. So the fur industry overall, that is an industry that is collapsing. This past year it was just a clear indication of the trajectory for the industry, which is an industry that frankly, it's going down. It really is. And with the fur industry starting to frankly acknowledge that the end 
is in sight, I feel there's going to be a lot of other issues that come up when it comes to raising killing animals for clothing and other materials. They are not dumb. They see what's happened with the fur issue, and they're more likely going to start using different products. And frankly, I've had the same experience you've had going to get sneakers and someone's like, oh yeah, this is real leather, as if it's a good thing. But now more sneakers than ever don't have leather in it. There are many comfortable pillows that don't have to have duck feathers in it. And yes, your podcast has done such a tremendous job going over our shift towards plant-based meats and eventually cultivated meat. It's the same thing is going to happen with other uses of animals. And if the fur industry is feeling the effects of change, other industries will too. There's a call for public comment for cultured meats. I think it's specifically related to labeling. That's one way kind of the public can get involved in terms of being heard. But what are other ways that, for example, some of the listeners of this show, whether they're based in the U.S., about half or 55% are based in the U.S., other 45% are listening from abroad. What are ways that people can learn about policies or upcoming opportunities to vote? Yeah, to lend their voice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As you said, for those listeners of the United States and those tuning in from abroad, there has been a big step forward with the USDA coming out in my view, pretty favorably in terms of what we were hoping to see related to cultivated meat. And the public certainly has a right to lend their voice. What I would say is one thing to do is follow groups whose focus is this space on social media, because you can be updated immediately. Obviously, you're listening to this podcast. That's a great step. Keep doing it. Also follow an organization like the Good Food Institute on Twitter and, and Facebook, so you're up to date on things that are happening and ways one can get active immediately. At the same time, and this is really important, Alex, and I'm, it really reflects how you are spot on to talk about both plant-based and cultivated meat, is that the cultivated meat companies I've talked to have made it clear that it is very helpful for them when plant-based meats are seen as popular. And the reason being, is that if we want the food industry, whether that is supermarkets, restaurant chains, or the meat industry, as in meat from live animals, if we want to see a future without having to use animals in industrial animal agricultural settings, they have to see that people do want change in their own purchasing. And when people are going out there and purchasing these plant-based products, it is showing to them that people don't want to stick with what they've been doing before. And so whether, as, as Alex is doing, is purchasing a Just Egg for breakfast, or you're going out and getting Beyond Meat or Impossible products, or choosing you know, Gardein or Rebellious Chicken Nuggets, whatever you may be doing by buying plant-based, not only are you helping animals directly by not eating them, not only are you supporting companies that are driving change forward, you're also demonstrating to the food industry that a status quo of raising and killing animals in these industrial factory farms and slaughterhouses is something you're just not going to support anymore. And that will help drive them not just to plant-based, also to cultivated meat. So that's something that everyone can do. Everybody can do each and every day. And I got to say, more people are doing that. And because of that, I feel like it is simply a matter of time, simply a matter of time between where we are now 
and having plant-based and cultivated meat being the center of what is the meat section of grocery stores, restaurants, and everywhere else we get food. One thing, and you mentioned Just Egg, and I rave about it quite a bit. One thing that I see Just Egg as now, and this is more that liquid version, and I've mentioned this to Josh Tetrick as well, but it's such a unique product that to me, it's not just like an egg replacer. It puts things in a little bit of a new category. And I wanted to ask you, are there any food products that have come on the market that maybe you have not seen as something to replace, but just something just so new that it has become a staple on your grocery list? And it doesn't have to be like something over the last year or two years, but is there a product or type of food that is really like your go-to that you just love to have? You bring up a really good point that when people buy Just Egg, they're not buying it because they are looking for some replacement of an egg. They're buying it because it tastes really good. There's a lot of buzz about it. There are athletes and singers and celebrities promoting it. It is just something that has become mainstream, not as a replacement, but just because it is delicious and it's fun. It's cool. You just feel like you're eating the future. You really do. And there are other companies and products that are like that, that it's not like, hey, I'm going to have a veggie chicken to replace the chicken from the factory farm. It's like a cool company to support, to bring up Impossible as an example. The fact that they were on national TV commercials from Burger King during football games, that made it buzzworthy. The fact that like Beyond Meat has been picked up by restaurant chains across the country and, and formed a partnership with McDonald's. There's an energy about that. And so what you laid out is what I hope every company does is try to make their product good without it having to say, hey, we're just replacing this or choose this instead of that. No, you stand on its own. I just like look at it back in the technology area. If you look at what Apple does, Apple wasn't advertising, oh my gosh, you look at our product and have it replaced the other product. No, they just promote their product as being really awesome and fun and easy to use and makes your lives better. That's part of their advertisement, their marketing plan, and it works. That's what we should be doing for plant-based products as well. What I can say is that while there's been a lot of advancements for plant-based eggs, of course, and burgers, and now there's been more companies focused on chicken, which is great. There has to be more for fish are the animals who are killed in the greatest numbers. And they often have terrible lives you know, in these aquaculture operations. And those who are caught in the wild have just a torturously painful death. And so if there is anything I'd wish there perhaps to answer your question is a plant-based fish product that people buy because it is really phenomenal. I bet we'll get there. I'm not sure we're there yet. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to uh, the wild type sashimi. And I don't know if you've heard of this product, but there is a restaurant chain in Europe, in the Netherlands, called Vegan Junk Food Bar. And they had this really interesting, like, sushi. I guess they had salmon and they had tuna, 100% vegan. And I think they started productizing it. But that was also something that it was a good replacement, but it was also really interesting just on its own. And I think we'll definitely be seeing more of those. 
Even the typical brands that you see like Gardein or there's a couple others, but recently some of the products I've picked up 100% vegan and they're starting to get better. They're starting to get really good. And so I'm excited to see more of that. Yeah, we're getting there. We really are. Back when I first went uh, vegan back in 2001, actually, let's go back to when I became vegetarian in 1998. I, I didn't know what I was doing and there weren't any of these products out there. And, you know, I was just getting tofu and like putting ketchup on that thing. And it was disgusting. <laughs> and But I, I did it for ethical reasons and I sucked it up. Now, of course, I know that you can make tofu phenomenally delicious. But back in the day, I certainly didn't uh, understand how to do so. But now the fact that we can go into any mainstream grocer in the United States and around the world, mainstream grocery stores as well, and see that there's plant-based meats available shows how far we've come. Here in San Francisco, where, where I live, you can go into a Safeway, which is a very mainstream grocery store in the United States. You can go in their meat section, and there truly is a section within the meat section that's all plant-based meat. You don't need to go to some corner that's the vegan section or the natural food section. No, you literally go to the meat section to buy plant-based meat. If that's not an indicator of how far I've come, I don't know what is. In fact, if you want to know the trajectory of plant-based meat, look no further than the plant-based dairy industry. Years ago, when again, when I became vegan, plant-based milk was so disgusting, I used to have to put orange juice in my cereal. It was like a better alternative for me than to try to mix some soy powder with water and make my own soy milk. Those were some really pathetic days. Now every major grocery store carries plant-based milk in the dairy section. And the plant-based milk is delicious. In fact, all the surveys indicate that the vast majority of people who buy plant-based milk are not vegans or vegetarians. These are everyday omnivores that are incorporating plant-based milk into their diet. And the fluid dairy market is collapsing in the United States because of plant-based milk becoming so popular. And the major reason why is because it's sold in the dairy section. So if that's an indicator of the future for plant-based meat, I think we have a, a positive outlook to come. And, and that I think really is the light at the end of the tunnel, right? Our conversation was getting pretty dark earlier thinking about what could be, but I think you're right. In fact, I saw a sign at, I think it was Blue Bottle Coffee, saying that if you order milk, almond milk will be the standard milk. And if you want dairy milk, you're going to have to tell them. And I think, yeah, seeing that and along with all these other products is, is really getting us there. You know, let, I'm, I'm with you. Let's get out, out of some of that gloomy stuff that we talked about earlier. Let, let's talk about what the meat industry is doing to show that our vision of the future is what they actually see too. If you look at the largest meat companies in our country and actually globally too, virtually every single one of them is invested in plant-based meat and or has a plant-based meat division and or is invested in cultivated meat. Five years ago, that wasn't the case. 10 years ago, certainly wasn't the case. But the fact that the actual meat industry itself is doing it is, I think, the prime example to demonstrate the type of advancements we've come in this area. I truly believe, I don't feel like I'm living in a fantasy world here. I truly believe that within five, 10 years, we're going to see plant-based meats become completely mainstream. 
where they're going to be looked upon as normalized with Americans all across our country, no matter what the sociodemographic, no matter what part of the country, plant-based meat is going to be part of our diets. It is for the younger generations, which is a good indicator of the future. And I think, you know, in 15, 20 years, we're going to see cultivated meat starting to take a chunk out of the conventional meat industry too. Don't just trust me. The meat industry feels the same. And if they feel the same, I think we should all feel pretty good that we're moving in a positive direction. It can't happen soon enough, but I think we'll get there. I really do. I think as you were saying that, I started realizing actually how important policy, rules, regulation, and new laws really are, because I usually try to avoid the comparison between gasoline and and electric cars to the meat and alternative protein industry. But if you look at electric vehicles, there's starting to be laws that will require that new vehicles will need to be electric by a certain date. And I think as we continue to inch forward, maybe we'll also see that too for alternative proteins. There's no reason why alternative proteins can't be part of the discussion related to solving the climate crisis. In fact, it should be the primary focus on solving the climate crisis because of the impact producing meat causes to our environment. I know you know this, Alex. Raising animals for food is as destructive for land usage, water usage, and greenhouse gas emissions as it comes, more so than global transportation combined. What we have not done yet in terms of our country, or frankly, virtually any others, is to view solving this climate crisis we have by looking and advocating for and funding alternative proteins. There has been you know, some steps from some countries, but not nearly enough. You're, you are so right to bring up clean cars. We know all about windmills and solar panels and energy efficient light bulbs. That is just so part of our lexicon when it comes to discussing trying to solve the climate crisis, yet it's ignoring the the main reason why it's happening. And so that's something we can do. I'm not as optimistic we're going to do that in the short term. It just hasn't been happening. And I feel like there isn't the political will to get it done in the type of scale needed to make an impact right now. And I certainly hope it changes. I know there's a lot of good people in the United States across the world that are fighting for that change. But in the meantime, I think it is pretty good to look at how other industries have changed for better climate policies, and we should translate that to animal agriculture as well. Josh, as we wrap up, I want to ask you if you have any last insights or announcements for our listeners today. First, thanks for listening to this podcast. You know, if you're listening, you're taking already the first step and getting informed and and just making these topics part of your life. So just First, I would say thank you. And then I would say go out and and give something a shot. Start a company. Join an organization that is working on this issue. Whatever it may be, go out and and give something a shot. Try plant-based meats for the first time or eggs or milk for the first time. Help your friends take that step. If I can persuade my dad who's 80 years old to to go plant-based, I give you my word. Anyone can take steps in a healthier way more humane, sustainable direction. So please go out, give things a shot. Just learning is phenomenal, but not enough. We all got to do our part, get in there, take risks, take leaps, try. And you know what? You're going to get 
something done and you'll be really proud. If I'm able to do some of this stuff, I promise you, you all are able to do it too. So Alex, thanks for having me back on. It, it was such a great conversation with you. Always love being on. Josh, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the Cultured Meat and Future Food Show. This is your host, Alex, and we look forward to being with you on our next episode. This program was produced by H Media. We'll see you soon.